Welcome to the third episode of London Digital Nattering. In this special extended edition, I'm joined by Matteo Placesi, Head of Marketing and Communications at the Design Museum. Originally from Italy, Matteo came to London in 2006 to do a Master's in Arts Management at the University of Greenwich and settled here afterwards. Matteo has been working in marketing for the past 11 years through music, theatre, festivals and exhibitions. Matteo arrived at the studio to record this session, having just come out of a meeting to review the success of a recent exhibition he promoted called Ferrari Under the Skin, which attracted over 100,000 visitors to the Design Museum. Matteo is here in personal capacity and does not represent the Design Museum today. We talk about the arts, culture and entertainment industry in London and its European context, which leads on inevitably to our secondary topic of Brexit. So, get a brew on, sit back, enjoy the show. Hello, Matteo. <laughs> Hello, Kieran. Thanks very much for coming into the studio today. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for inviting me. You are the head of marketing and communications or just head of communications? I'm head of marketing and communications. Ooh, yeah. Okay, and that's at the Design Museum, no less. Yeah, in uh, in London, in uh, Kensington. Okay, cool. Um, so, you're you've just had a very busy day. You've come back. Uh, you've come in to the studio from a session talking about the latest exhibition that you've been running. Yeah, an exhibition that closed in April, mm-hmm. uh, which was the uh, yeah the best you know it's kind of the best selling biggest exhibition the museum has ever done. So obviously we have a lot of to analyze and, and and discuss, cool, and learn for the future. Cool. That sounds that sounds very digital. Analyzing, discussing, learning, yeah, planning for the future. Yeah, that's what I try to do. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So we're we're here today to talk about a couple of topics. So the first one, the big topic, is digital transformation in arts, culture, and entertainment. Yep. And we'll be also digging into the happy, happy topic of Brexit afterwards. Just can't get enough of it. Just can't get enough of that Brexit. Got to love the <laughs> Brexit. So um, just for those listening, what what do we even mean by arts, culture and entertainment? And how can it even be digital? Um, so what we mean for, I think there's kind of a distinction. So you go arts and culture sector um, and kind of arts and culture uh, products shall we say which are events or which could be you know music film exhibitions so our visual arts uh, um, uh, and performance in general um, and uh, and these are experiences and products that um, t- to define they sort of add Every time you experience them, they add an extra block of, of knowledge or kind of they enrich you as a, as a, as a human being in a way. And as well as, you know, sometimes, most of the times, entertaining as well. Um, while entertainment is much more looking at the commercial world of, uh, again, music, film, uh, um, theater. And uh, and these are mostly sort of pleasurable, you know, um, experiences, and uh, and and it's some and they, they give you something that you are you already like, you know, a lot, and uh, and they keep on giving that. But but the main drive for that is uh, commercial, 
rife for the arts culture is uh, is uh, more uh, of a um, humanist, I guess. Uh, okay, if that's a word. Um, um, uh, output. So there's a kind of what you're drawing a distinction between here. It seems to be a low culture and a high culture. Like that's how I think people used to refer to it decades ago. Um, I would say, yeah, popular popular mm-hmm. culture, uh, entertainment, and uh, I would say just culture in you know, the other end. It is not really it's not really high or low. It's just uh, sort of different. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, and, and yeah. yes, the answer is yes. But um, <laughs> but to me, it's more like a, um, it's just a different output. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna <laughs> dig a little bit more into that. You know, um, this definition rather rather than using the words low or high in terms of culture, mm-hmm. um, not to use those seems a bit more egalitarian and a bit more respectful of. Yeah. just just it is what it is. Yeah. Art for the sake of art, right? Um, well, there's art for the sake of art, and which to some people actually could could appear as a elitist in a way, um, and 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 I guess putting the artist up on a pedestal. Uh, but um, well, I like the most, and, and and that's why I like well, because I work in in the, in the sector. I'm not. Um, an artist myself is is more like the, de- the audience development and trying to to be a service for uh, for a purpose. You know, using the these um, media, you know, and, and art forms for for a purpose for for society. So the society is the purpose. What what is the effect? What what is that? What is that purpose doing? Um. So I guess there's been a lot of um, there's been sort of decades now of uh, debate and discussion about the impact and the purpose, right, of uh, the arts uh, in particular, and uh, um, and most recently there've been uh, quite a few um, studies, and uh, um, there are you know there's been. A, trying to quantify the economic impact, okay. for example, mm-hmm. of um, cultural organizations, of the creative industries in, in, in general, uh, and also the social impact, right? Um, so try to put a number on one and then try to uh, picture, you know, paint a, a wider picture of the, the benefits of arts and culture. And these go from, uh, uh, you know, um, mental health. Yep. To uh, just uh, you know, pure. Um, when we say more, so there's mental health, which is a kind of an intangible benefit. Yeah. Hopefully measurable by you know fewer people going into hospital for requiring yeah, treatment. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that can be measured. Yeah. And then presumably the other thing is a, some kind of tangible economic output. Yeah, but then also on the on on the social elements that you've got. You know the educational uh, uh-huh. aspect to it, and uh, and yeah, on the economic, there's all the economy strictly related to the the product produced, and also like all around it. Like you know, the way so there's been in uh, in 2012, the City of London Corporation commissioned uh, a study on the economic and social impact of the cultural organisations within the square mile, for example. Oh right, right. That was published in 2013, and and we can put a link. On, on, okay. your, on your website. Yeah, there'll be show notes published at the end of this, yeah. Um, 
and that assessed uh, quite thoroughly. Um, so the, organiz the cultural organizations in the Square Mile are, you know, the Barbican Centre, the Museum of London, uh, the London, um, the City of London Festival, which actually doesn't exist anymore, um, things like that. And, uh, and, and they assessed that the impact was, uh, they contributed the uh, gross value added, uh, which is an economic uh, indicator, uh, was about 230 million pounds a year to the, uh, the square mile. Wow. Um, which actually, if I remember correctly, was more in terms of net contribution to the economy of the city of London, was actually more than what banks uh, contribute because, uh, yeah, because obviously, you know, I guess banks are here because they don't really pay any much taxes or, <laughs> or, don't, or don't contribute as much to the community. <laughs> um, so it's a real, it's a real benefit for, for the city of London. Um, and also it's, a, and then that includes uh, hotels and, you know, because obviously these organizations, uh, these programs create an opportunity to visit, you know, rather than just working uh, mm. in, in, in that uh, location. Um, then the Creative Industries Federation uh, recently published uh, the impact, the economic impact, and again the gross value added of the creative industries. In uh, um, so I might be able to help you with the stats here. Yeah, uh, ninety-one point eight billion in twenty sixteen. That's uh, that is UK wide, I think. Yeah, uh, and the the mind blowing stat here is that it's larger than automotive life sciences aerospace oil and gas even combined that is nuts yep so 91.8 billion yep so you can see i mean there's an understanding already that from politicians from local authorities and the government that on a, on a certain level there's an understanding that there's a real contribution and the return on the investment is much higher actually than um other sectors um <coughs> So, but parallel to that, there's kind of a um, under constant sort of endemic underfunding of the sector, right? From which is a sector that does need uh, government, uh, local, like public support and funding to to exist because so, of the nature of it. Um, um, and so, and then I notice on some of the stats that we looked at earlier that we have um, the largest player. The lot regionally in this is the southeast, presumably mostly London, right? London, yeah. Yeah. So just as well, we've got this on London Digital Mattering. There you go. So, uh, yeah, so we're talking about the output. Um, so now the input is constrained. You were, you were starting to talk there about funding being constrained. Yeah. Um, funding seems to be um, public funding is... Uh, is, is, is it's always, um, it always seems too little <laughs> um, across the sector. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to note, to note that the, I think the statistic from the um, Creative Industries Federation mentioned that about half or over half of actually the businesses in the creative industries are small businesses uh, with less than 10 employees. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a very fragmented um, kind of small um, scale uh, um, businesses. Um, and then you've got the big kind of national um, organizations uh, and uh, and the way maybe taking a step back the way organizations in the sector are usually funded uh, so 
Number one, uh, uh, they're funded directly by the Department of um, Media, Media, Sports and Culture. Uh, and these are, for example, the national museums like, mm-hmm. you know, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Science Museum. And, mm-hmm. um, the, then you have um, um, organizations funded uh, regularly uh, with uh, kind of three-year or five-year agreements through the Arts Council which is an independent body that gets uh, money from the government and then through they have their own policy uh, in terms of allocating fund, funds. Um, anyway, and you, so you've got organizations funded by the Arts Council like the, the Royal Opera House. Um, then the Arts Council also gives out um, uh, money for projects. So actually, most of these players in the, um, in the sector will apply for money for specific projects, okay. rather than having you know a, a stability, uh, a kind of long-term uh, funding, right? Um, and then you got subjects that you know they just uh, privately funded. Uh, they get little or no money from from the government. Um, so, for example, the, the the museum where I work is one of them, um, sort of design museum. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I I took it for granted that it was a. Publicly, I just figured all museums are publicly funded. No, it gets um, just two percent of its okay. operative income. Is uh, it free from, admission from into the, the design museum? The design museum is free to enter, and there's a free permanent display, yeah. um, which is actually for the first time since um, in its history it started having that with uh, when it moved to Kensington in 2016. Okay. Um, and then as a ticketed temporary exhibitions. Ah, right. And that's that's for example the ticketed one is the one that you're talking about. We were talking about earlier about Ferrari. Yeah. Okay. So you've got DCMS, Arts Council, private funding. Yeah. The Arts Council presumably is lottery money. It's lottery money. Lottery money. Yeah. And then you got the Lottery Heritage uh, Fund that is a separate body that okay. funds capital projects mainly. Right. So the design museum was funded uh, had a contribution because it was a big kind of uh, I think over eighty million pounds kind of um, development to move into the Commonwealth Institutes the, the building that used to be the Commonwealth Institute so uh, a part of that budget was covered by the um, uh, lottery heritage fund. Cool. Yeah. All right. So so. I imagine tons and tons of people involved in applying for grants, all of that great stuff. Yeah, there's a whole bureaucracy that goes with it, obviously. Um, but going back to the the, the funding, um, yeah, it's always struck me as uh, weird that there's this um, clear understanding in certain circles at least that you know there's a real there's a big contribution and there's a huge multiplier uh, for society and the economy in funding the arts and culture uh, but uh, but when you go and talk about budgets and money it's always <laughs> <laughs> less and less and actually there's been cuts in the past 10 years and particularly when you know with the Tory government yeah um, they've been They've been pushing, let's say, towards a more, in their view, I guess, a more entrepreneurial um, 
way of operating for these organizations, which means that they have to get more money uh, in commercially. So okay. either through admissions uh, or through fundraising or commercial, the commercial branches, so in terms of retail or hiring spaces or things like that. So much a bigger percentage of their budget uh, needs to come, their income needs to come from these uh, diversified sort of sources. Cool. So I'd really like to talk about um, that fragmentation and pseudo competition inside uh, the industry a bit later on, because I think there are some benefits and disbenefits from that. Um, So, hey, part of the key topic is digital. So where, how does digital touch this and uh, specifically digital transformation? Like, first off, what do we mean by digital transformation? what, to me, digital, trans, digital transformation means uh, that, you know, like you said at the beginning, you know, like, you know, we're looking back at uh, an exhibition that's closed and we analyze and discuss. And so we look at the data, we analyze and learn. Um, and that's really the approach, I think, that comes with uh, the digital approach and the way mm-hmm. that I think organizations need to think um, from the... Um, so have the infrastructure in place to measure, uh, and, uh, and measure more and more with the tools available, measure actual behavior and, uh, rather than, um, you know, to accompany qualitative research, but you've got many more tools to, um, to learn more from the quantitative, quantitative as well. Um, so it really is that approach that starts from the data and having the tools to analyze the data and then uh, um, change the way you do things accordingly. So one um, effect uh, of um, one consequence of you know this uh, drive to get more money from um, commercial sources or admissions is that actually. Um, the programs can become more populist, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, go towards the the commercial kind of purely in some entertainment world, which you know to cash in uh, on things that we know the audience likes. Right? Okay, so that's that's back to that 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 continuum between kind of like art and culture at the I feel bad even saying it at the high end, <laughs> and then the entertainment at the low end right, right? Yeah. is that is that what you mean yeah, yeah. Populist. um populist yeah and uh so so it doesn't mean that you just need to so you learn from the data and then you just deliver whatever the audience only what the, you know is gonna is gonna sell basically you know yeah um it means that you learn uh, it's a more nuanced approach where you got more sophisticated data which means that you can better reach and engage on uh, more difficult topics uh, for example and you can effectively develop an audience and uh, and really what the key here is this audience development drive because um, what really attracted me um, so I'm Italian and uh, what really attracted me uh, to to come and work here oh, yeah. was um, that when I was uh, when I was studying, I um, so I studied arts management in in Italy and and here um, that there was this real clear policy here that you know if all this work is funded by uh, tax the taxpayer, then there's a um, 
a, a drive to um, make it as accessible as possible because mm. everyone is contributing to it so everyone should be able to access it and that means that you move from something that is purely intellectual to something that is intelligent you know nice and uh, um, and inclusive yeah right um, and audience development it's it's all it's part of that so why a digital it's it's a big part of that because it lets you learn more and then it lets you um, have more effective ways to reach and engage which means you in the long term you can develop uh, that audience so in terms of audience development is is what the policy and the tax policy is trying to do is that about trying to get more and more audience penetration into the arts and culture end but in a more accessible way that makes sense to people is that what that's supposed to do yeah i think so i think that's that's the key and uh and obviously that's only part of the picture because um because you know at some point you know one of the biggest insights in decades of, of research is that if someone is not interested in in something that they're just not interested. Yeah. <laughs> years and years and decades of research. Have you ever seen uh, that happen with any of your uh, projects? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, because, you know, there's a big drive, you know, the Arts Council, and, and obviously, you know, there's a big drive to engage with uh, audiences that have low cultural engagement, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, they are defined, and particularly from um, ethnic minorities. Uh, in the population, uh, in deprived areas, you know, and um, and sometimes it's really just a matter of uh, you know going in those communities with something that they can connect with, uh, which is part of it is that they like, you know, and also it's part of their culture, you know, rather than bring in a different culture in and kind of you know, force them to listen to Beethoven, you know yeah. what I mean, yeah. um, and. Um, so yeah, I've seen it plenty of times now that you know there's all this work on uh, trying to sell and shape something for those uh, audiences like low engagement, low cultural engagement audiences that has nothing to do with them, and it's uh, treated as just a pure marketing effort. So and that never works. So we talked about the the economic value. Or I'm putting my cynical hat on now. Yeah? yeah. So we talked about the economic value of the sector, but why would I don't know why would the, why would the government want the proletariat to embrace <laughs> culture? Do you know what I mean? Why would they want the proles listening to well, whatever Beethoven or looking at ballet? Um, well, I guess it depends who's in government. Yeah, <laughs> number one. Yeah. I mean, that was a big drive from particularly from I think nineteen ninety seven, and obviously you know. So I think it was a big part initially of um, labor policy, mm-hmm. um, but then you get. People who work in the arts and, and people who are in those uh, kind of uh, policy-making you know, roles as well, they, they, they are that, for, luckily, they're, they're that kind of person um, who understands that a um, that culture is good for society as a whole. It makes better uh, citizens, like uh, well-rounded, um, critical um citizens that are tolerant you know respectful and um, mentally stable (laughs) balanced um, and all of that Um, better productive 
you know, there's all that. Um, and and more evidence, knowledgeable, you know. And there's evidence for stuff like the productivity and the um, crime reduction or social behavior. I think I think there are. I mean, there's there's uh, certainly a link, and there are studies about you know with um, you know the kind of culture offering in certain areas and the way uh, people. There was recently actually, and and you have to excuse me, but I don't. I'm not 100% sure it was real because I just saw it on <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. And someone I trust shared it, but you never know these days. Yeah. Um, and the recent elections uh, in Italy. And there was this correlation between uh, um, the, the fact, so in areas where, in like small towns where uh, there wasn't even a cinema, yeah. right, voted overwhel- overwhelmingly for the right. Interesting. Right. And now I don't know if it's just a correlation because it's a small town and yeah. kind of, you know, you get a certain type of person. I don't know. But um, but the fact that there was no cultural offering, even just because the cinema is actually everywhere in a way. I mean, less so these days. But um, so, so there was that. And, and so the, the, the less culture, the more intolerant, basically, they were. And I guess the less informed, you know, because yeah. they, they weren't worse people, I guess. But all I'm saying is, if you don't have the opportunity to, to, to access um, something that explains the world to you and the complexity, it cuts through the, the complexity in, a, in an emotional and intelligent way, you know, and gives you the instruments to understand what's going on in a very, I mean, complex world. I mean, massively confusing for everyone. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, that has an impact. So, so yeah, it depends on, on, on who's in government because then you, you also have, you know, the, you know, people who just like to preserve a certain type of, as you say, high culture, the way they see it, uh, the way it is and just fund it purely as a, a museum in a way, in the, in the, in the worst possible meaning of museum. Uh, which is just a place where you just store stuff, keep it there to dust, you know, uh, to gather dust. And while the other end and the best possible way to can describe the museum is uh, that preserves the memory, but uses this memory to affect the present and make you understand the present and, and lets you use it for that yeah. purpose. But I mean, it's, it goes back to, I mean, it goes back to the, the commune uh, experiment in Paris is like oh, yeah. in 18th, 19th century, 19th century. Uh, you know, it was the city against the countryside. Uh, it's kind of a thread <laughs> throughout history. Um, and maybe, yeah, you can get it down to this uh, lack of, because uh, at the end of the day, a lack of culture is a lack of understanding, like in the most basic sense, right? Meaning, um, and obviously, you know, it's easy for us to say because we think we're right. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so we think we understand. I but, think this is uh, yeah. where we put in a perspective disclaimer, folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so that's that's the value and uh, and why a government wouldn't would invest in it beyond. Although then at the end, you know, this argument was was made for a long time, but then uh, someone had to really go and with a calculator and just count the beans, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, (laughs) And go, okay, guys, uh, we've been beating around the bush for for a while now. Uh, This is actually our contribution to the economy. Yeah. And and everybody pays attention all of a sudden. Um, 
even if that number is impossible to measure. Exactly. <laughs> but it's written down, so it must be true. Exactly. Okay, so um, we talked a little bit about digital. We summarized that as a mindset kind of thing and a, and a process of looking and using it, using data, looking at data, experimentation, learning, right? Yeah, testing things and uh, and, and eventually with, towards developing the audience. Why, why even bother with any digital like technology approaches? What are the problems that you're trying to solve in the industry? I mean, you are not the whole industry, obviously, but no. in your professional experience. <laughs> um, I think the number one, well, so I, I'll, I obviously talk about um, the communication side of things, so the, the marketing and PR side of, side of things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So in that respect, there was a, a problem of this. Still, to some extent, is a problem of feedback, right, from the audience because you're talking to a mass of people and you're not talking to individuals, and you need to learn who they are and what they want, what they like, what they understand, what they don't understand. Um, secondly, there's a problem of reach, effective reach of these people. Um, we're talking, you know, going back to the funding, you know, we're talking yeah. about organizations that don't have millions of pounds to spend on uh, advertising. Uh, everything needs to be with the minimum wastage, you know, communication needs to be very targeted and, uh, and, and, and effective to small budgets we're talking about. Okay. So digital helped an awful lot with that. Um, and then, I guess the third one was uh, this opportunity to cut the middleman uh, on some level, which is uh, what actually has been extensively talked about with, you know, the artist now being directly in touch with the fan, that kind of phenomenon where you don't need, sort of you don't need, you know, you don't need a journalist in the middle anymore mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to communicate with your fan base, um, that sort of thing. Do you need a PR person still? Um but the PR person you need now has changed a bit because f- before it was just the PR person was, you know, he was keeping the relationship with the journalists and editors and then sending out writing and sending out information that, that they would use to create their own content uh, or as a as a initial stimulus to mm. then be interested and then, I don't know, come down and produce content, uh, different content about it. Um, now that PR person also produces content. You know, right on, yeah. uh, which is the organization or the artists themselves producing this content and then distributing it through these platforms. So there's a, there's a slight change, um, and also there's there's a this new figure that's um, exploded into the scene, <laughs> um, the digital scene, which is uh, the influencer, ah. which is this uh, you know these people on uh, uh, that have built a, a huge following on social media and. Uh, they are a new type of middleman kind of intermediary that you can use, you can build a relationship with and then uh, to reach their audience because they've built these this audience and you use them to, to reach, to act, get access to it. But, but at the same time, now you have the opportunity to build your own uh, audience directly and to build this, uh, what, what you call... Um, in what I would call a valuable niche 
based on specific interests and based on what you're producing, you know, as, a, as an organization, as an artist, and long-term kind of try to grow and grow and grow and grow this niche that brings in enough uh, value to your organization to survive and keep doing what you're doing and do it better and better and, and, and enlarging that, that, that base. Okay. So, uh, so your role as communications guru, are you the, are you an influencer? Are you the PR guy? Are you the, would you say, where would you, do you fit in any box? Um, I am, um, I'm across the, um, the whole spectrum. I'm not an influencer. <laughs> no. I don't have, I don't have many followings on Instagram. Uh, well, you will soon. I barely, I barely use Instagram. <laughs> my, my, our whole dozen listeners will, uh, I'm sure, subscribe. Yeah, I was, I was one of those ones who signed up to Facebook back when it was still, you still needed a, um, a university email. Do you remember that? <laughs> to subscribe. Wow. 2006. Wow. Okay. Um, but, um, but I'm across it, and uh, um, and there's this thing now, and and this goes back again to digital uh, is. Uh, the T-shaped marketeer. The T-shaped is uh, um, kind of the, the the little stick of the like the, the vertical stick of the of the T is the uh, the vertical line is uh, sort of kind of depth yeah. in-depth knowledge of one particular um, field or um, discipline within the field. And then we got the T, the horizontal one, which is a, a knowledge, kind of a general, like a, you know, not as in depth, but a clear knowledge of all the other bits yeah. uh, that that affect your the output ultimately. Um, so that's that's what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, I mean the T the T shape thing resonates because that's what we, you know, in in, in my team try and hire for. You know, yeah. um, people are maybe very, very good at uh, product consulting or product design who can also do some delivery stuff, um, you know, delivery management on top. So totally get that. So um, what has the impact been of new tech on, on the sector? You know, the race, what's the arms race here? Um, so what's interesting about it is it the sector... So there was very little innovation. There has been very little innovation that came from the sector itself. Uh, what happened is that uh, tech companies have devised, have disrupted the the whole um, the whole sector, including their own sectors, yeah. uh, and have sort of <laughs> imposed uh, new uh, technology and new channels and new ways of doing things. And then the sector had to catch up. Um, to learn these uh, technologies and learn these new ways of doing things and then apply them to, to what they were doing. Okay. Um, and obviously it all, it all started with, um, uh, you know, Napster for the music business, for the oh, music yeah, industry, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all of a sudden that was, uh, that was a software. That was a piece of software that changed forever the way that music, the music business was conducted um, for uh, a very long time. Uh, to the point that these days, you know, and the, the, the whole f- form, you know, the, the album format uh, is, um, is being uh, uh, kind of archived in a way, <laughs> yeah. um, or less in the future. But um, so, so that's when we started. 
so that's what happened. So t- t- technology kind of crashed into the the sector uh, yeah. on all levels, mm. uh, more or less, and throughout the years, uh, starting really with music. Um, um, so there was this catching up to do, but then, um, uh, but then also there was this great opportunity all of a sudden that I, I mentioned before, which was okay, we got this great access now to our audiences. Uh, this direct access, um, and uh, and then the next kind of disruption was for the advertising industry, uh, again, which is part of creative industries. Yeah, um, that meant that before you had all these different players, and it was very fragmented, and you had like ma- magazines. You remember those magazines? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that you know were cultivating an audience, yeah. and then you would advertise on it to reach that audience. You know, yeah. you would put a full page ad in there, and, and people would read it. Um, and uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the field was left with mainly sort of Facebook and Google as the two big players in it, because what they did is they built this very sophisticated technology again that lets you target people. Um, to advertise, to, to promote stuff to them, to sell them stuff in a way that's so much more accurate. Yeah. Uh, and was based on, for the first time, was based on their actual behavior online, which uh, admittedly, obviously, they were spying effectively mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> by tracking behavior online. Um, and uh, so you could target people by their interests, so the interests of meaning that the things that I've been talking about online or they've been browsing online or they've been buying online um, and uh, with a much more cost-effective format and much more just effective formats like you know native formats like you know google search yeah. uh, that looks uh, the ads look exactly like the organic searches for, for uh-huh. years actually people i mean to this day there are people that don't know the difference they search yeah. for something and the top they get three ads and they look like search results Mm-hmm. And they click on them. Often with catastrophic results for them, you know, like these interloper things, these interloper services trying to sell you visas. Yeah, all, yeah, all yeah, sorts yeah. of stuff. Um, and Facebook the same, you know, the ads mm. on Facebook or Instagram now, and uh, they look exactly the same as any other post. Um, so that makes it much more effective because, you know, there's extensive research on the fact that people don't really see digital banners on websites yeah uh, I mean they, they, we've been sort of blind to them for a long time now um, okay. so so there's that um, and then the next one was um, mobile uh, the next disruption so mobile meant that you could so you have these people carrying around uh, these devices and carrying around this opportunity to be reached the whole time throughout the day Right, so you could do that kind of very targeted. You could have that very targeted approach at scale. Yeah, right, um, which makes it much more effective, uh, and uh, com- combined with the fact that the price of that advertising inventory was right in a way. It, it was very low, uh, while bef- while publishers normally charge, um, in my experience, a bit. Too much <laughs> compared to what you get back. Um, oh well, t- tell us more about that. No, no, it's it's just so there's there's a there's a, a whole um, sense of uh, um, so when you're buying inventory directly from a publisher, you're buying prime inventory, right? So what what Google did 
this was Google with the Google Ad Exchange. What they did is they made they found a way to monetize the long tail of web traffic, mm-hmm. right? So what do you do? You do is you have access to all these placements that before publishers weren't able to sell because it was just not enough of it in one website. Yeah, you know. So you're talking about. A very small amount of impressions on a page that very few people obviously visit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't matter when you have a, a, a network of millions of those websites. So millions of those pages with little, uh, small hits, small amount of hits, yeah. but still hits. So a small amount of hits multiplied by millions, yeah. it's millions of hundreds of millions of hits and yeah. impressions that you can now sell, right? So that's what Google did, because it doesn't matter. Like if I'm, uh, and that was part of the, in a way, the fourth disruption, the the fourth revolution in a way, which was prog- the, the programmatic buying. Programmatic buying is an automated way of buying advertising inventory online uh, by targeting an audience, you know, with certain characteristics across the web and across mobile applications, uh, rather than just targeting a specific context, meaning a page on a website or a section of a website. Yeah. Right? So what that does is you're targeting this person online, not this website. And if that person happens to be at the time you're advertising and you're in, in, a, in the place with a small amount of hits, but it's the right person, you're targeting that person, so that's valuable to you, all of a sudden. Right? Yeah. Doesn't matter that that person is on a prime section of the site or not, because all it matters is that you're targeting that person. So this is really taking to the extreme, trying to solve John Wanamaker's problem, the the advertiser. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, this is really taking to the extreme. You, you've gone through like three different, uh, sorry, four, four different. So there was uh, going backwards, programmatic, which is where you're yeah. targeting an in, an individual, irrespective of where they're at. Well, I'm talking about individual, but let's clarify. I mean, you're not, uh, you're not, you're not actually targeting an individual because uh-huh. it's all anonymous data. First of all, before we get in trouble with GDPR. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry about that. You know, everybody's going to be has been bombarded by emails from companies that they never subscribed to, uh, asking them to. Oh, by the way, the European Union is going to fire. Uh, is going to sue us. Uh, if <laughs> so, so I, I've actually I've actually noticed. I don't know if you have, but I've noticed the thing about these GDPR emails, right? So some emails I get are, "Hi, Kieran. Yeah. Um, you're on our mailing list." Um, Okay, well, we'd like you to click this button uh, just to see if uh, you'd be still interested in receiving stuff from yeah. us. And that's great. Those are my favorite emails because mostly I ignore them. So I'm not going to click mean, on the and that, Do you know what that means? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the back end, that means, oh, look, we've got Kieran on this list. We have no idea how he got here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that what that means? Throughout, throughout all these years, we don't know if it's just because he bought something from us and then... We didn't ask him, but we put it on our newsletter, you know, yeah. and then we just send him email. We started sending him emails and he never unsubscribed. 
So that's, that's what it means. Or if he actually gave us consent initially and subscribed to this newsletter. Oh, no. So we, we don't fi- know. We better find out. We better check. Um, so I get those ones. The next one I get is, hey, Kieran, um, you were on your, you're on our mailing list. We'd like to keep sending you stuff. Click here if you would like to opt out. So the first one is an opt-in email. The second one is an opt-out email. Yeah. And then there's a third one where I just keep getting emails. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless. Um, okay. So yeah, you got so programmatic, programmatic. you're targeting, let's say a group of people, like yeah. a group of people with certain characteristics yeah. across the web. Uh, they got mobile. Yeah. Then you got uh, Facebook and Google. Yeah. So the targeting and uh, the formats and the price. Yeah. Price is very important because it, they made it really accessible for small and medium businesses to manage this themselves as well. So they gave access to something that was com- very sophisticated and normally a, com- a private com- corporation would develop for themselves and then sell for a lot of money to customers to use. They just made it free to use on a commission base, obviously by buying advertising through their exchange um, and very easy to use as well. Yeah. And then you got at the beginning, going to the beginning of this, the, the, the tech disruption that was brought into the industry, into the sector by external forces, which were tech companies that were disrupting other sectors uh, with it. It's funny looking back and thinking about all this. um, It's unrecognizable compared to how it was 20 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Even 10 years ago. I mean, five years ago, marketing-wise, we were... Yeah. Three years ago, and you, <laughs> you, and you mentioned Napster, and I'm sure there are people listening to this going, "Who? What was Napster? Who's Napster? <laughs> you know, even I think it still exists. Does it? I think well, because they sold it. Somebody bought Napster at some point. I would thinking, like oh, this is a great business opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> pirate software, yeah, uh, piracy <laughs> software. And then I'm going to start selling this music without having licenses. Yeah, great. Anyway. Good, good skills. But I was reading, today there was an article, sorry, we, mm, but yeah. I didn't read the article, I just read the title on The Guardian. Uh, there are some people still using MySpace. Oh? Remember MySpace? They went through a reskin. They went through a, a, an attempted relaunch on MySpace, yeah. yeah. I, okay, uh, confession time. When they relaunched MySpace, I thought, let's have a look at this. So I actually went on and made a page and then just deleted it because <laughs> I couldn't see the point. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So lots of change coming into the sector. Uh, lots of new things happening. Probably, presumably, lots of technology people moving into nicely well-paid jobs with all that lucrative funding going into the uh, you know arts, culture, and entertainment sector. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But... Um, yeah. Uh, how how does this stuff how has this stuff gotten traction? How have things changed? How have things been able to change? I guess is my puzzle. Um, well, there's still a lot of of work to be done actually, because uh, well, parts of the industry have been so um, um, just unable or unwilling to move along to to move with it uh, for a long time mm. you know, you've got i mean the music the whole music business they try to um just stop <laughs> time oh. and just, oh you mean with like the rights and, management and refused and to to acknowledge that uh, uh, the times were moving with or without them 
Yeah. Uh, so they, they wasted a lot of um So you're referring to things like uh the the rights management. I mean, so my experience of trying to use in of trying to use music back then was do you know what? Not that I ever did for the record. It would be easier <laughs> to obtain music by piracy yeah. than it would be to use your service. Yeah. yeah. And then and then you got the the the, the Spotify's and all that uh, yeah. the revolutionized uh, legalized the um legalize it but but part of that and and you mentioned so again going back to the funding and so all these so with technology and with more sophisticated tools and uh, and ways of doing things and more analytical approach and all of that uh comes greater complexity and uh and a need to train people you know and to have um more uh, specialists and uh, and uh, different skills, uh, more very sought after skills, um, and with it so comes a, a very a big skills shortage in the industry because um, again these roles are not as well paid as in other industries, yeah. uh, and uh, a lot of it is through you know it's kind of um, civil service or like government funded again lesser paid jobs. Um, so all of a sudden you need these massive operation in a way. <laughs> like we talk about, so data is, you know, it's been a buzzword for a long time, but data, what is data? Data is simply the audience, right? Yeah. The way I look at it yeah. is anonymous data with interests and demographic traits uh, and behaviors attached to it, right? So to manage that data, to get the insight, to reach it, you need uh, complex systems like uh, in. IT systems, you know, you need uh, customer relationship management systems mm-hmm. that some of which are uh, big, you know, there's no... And not cheap. Right? Not cheap, expensive. Yeah. The system itself. Um, there's a problem with in this skills shortage and this lack of knowledge. There's, uh, you know, you need consultants all of a sudden. Um, oh, God forbid, consultants. <laughs> yeah. You need consultants that... Um, they lack another set of skills, in my experience, which is uh, because uh, the money has never been uh, really in, in culture. Like you don't go into culture to make money. Let's face it. Um, so they never really had to deal with that sector before, right? They, they deal with, you know, pharmaceutical or government or uh, um, whatever, you know, business that that have real money. Um, so they come in with a lack of understanding of the sector. There's a, so there's a lack of understanding on one side on what is uh, what is good for them. So in terms of what we need in terms of technological, mm-hmm. uh, the technical input. Um, and on the other side, there's a lack of understanding of, of, of what they actually need because you've got this uh, vast realm of possibilities with these tools that are very intelligent tools, uh, automation, you know, machine learning, AI, now we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and they don't even know what the basics are uh, that are needed in, in these sectors. So everything becomes so complex. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of work to be done and obviously slows everything down as well. Because the process takes a long time to get right, because you know you fail a couple of times, because you know there's there's this lack of connection basically mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the two parts. Um, there's a lot of money that gets wasted in a way throughout the years. Um, 
there's still a problem even training uh, that staff even just to operate these uh, these systems um, because the background is different you know as I said you know you go into culture for different reasons you don't go into culture to run normally you don't really go into that sector and start working in it because you want to run a tight business that's not what you had in mind. You run, you, you join you, it to be a creative person. Right? Yeah, to be a creative yeah. person, or because you believe in the product, you really have a big, deep, deep connection with the product, um, and uh, so so it gets very difficult to to fill those roles, to get those T-shaped people. Yeah, that I, I already know are even difficult to recruit in other sectors with the, where the money is let alone where there is no money. Like mm. when, you know, there are some people in, uh, um, in, in these organizations that are, you know, get paid kind of entry-level jobs. They pay 16,000 pounds a year in London. Uh, yeah. Like like, what, I mean, how is, what, I, what it's impossible to, to live on that. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. Which brings in a whole new layer of complexity, which is so only a certain kind of person can do those jobs, can take those jobs. Which are people that um, are from a middle upper class or well, middle class background that can afford to um, to 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 get you know have their family yeah. back in them yeah. and uh, they don't need to earn money really to live for a few years before they actually have to, while other people from more deprived backgrounds they they just can't afford it. So there, there's a, so basically wages are being subsidised by. Uh by families, the yeah. banker mum and dad. And you see that phenomenon in, in acting. There, there was a, a sort of, I saw a narrative buzzing around a few months ago, you know, yeah. ben, Benedict Come Cabbage Patch. Who <laughs> <laughs> um, is a hero, by the way. I don't know if you heard that. No? He, well, that? yeah, he, he stopped uh, for, in Marylebone, like near Marylebone High Street, he stopped four guys who were beating up a delivery driver. Or something. Did he? Right, yeah. Okay. With the taxi driver. I, I will no longer jokingly <laughs> refer to Benedict Cumberbatch by anything other than Benedict Cumberbatch. He's, he's a hero. Yeah. Uh, and Ed, Eddie Redmayne, right? And other people yeah. like Tom Hardy, you know, um, yeah. these chaps. Yeah, they come from They'd privileged come, backgrounds. Yeah. But that's even, I mean, that's that's acting. And the, oh, on, on, the, on the artist level, it's even worse. Oh, is it really? Worse because they don't even get paid at all. Like, in a way, when uh, at the entry level, they really don't get paid. Like... But um, like musicians or like yeah. they really need to do it free. Even they need to pay for it. I mean, a band these days, a, a young band, um, there is like the, the era of, you know, record companies uh, taking a, an unknown uh, artist and kind of uh, uh, growing uh, growing them in a way and, and making their career. That doesn't happen anymore. Like there's the band and the management who build an audience and invest in it and then all of a sudden they get noticed when they already have the audience and they get attached to a label or like that so there's much more it's much more cumbersome for artists to to um to to make it and and you do need to have the resources Mm. Um, so we were talking about sort of the technical uh, elements of the job. You were talking about audience reach and looking at data. This is quite some time ago. I'm curious to know when you look, what do you look for? How do you try and understand the audience? Uh, obviously, I don't want you to betray any state secrets here. Um, but 
if you're looking at trying to grow your audience, what are the sorts of questions you ask yourself? Um, so the sorts of questions um, what well, these days, because of the way these platforms, the digital platforms work, uh, I think you need to be guided by the way you can target people. So what you think is, okay, so what are these people most likely to be interested in, mm-hmm. right? Across the board, because um, you're not in a vacuum and uh, these people will, I don't know, like watch Netflix and... Uh, be interested in uh, in a writer and, and a musician and uh, a filmmaker or some type of film and and kind of you start building a picture right with the 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 um, the available set of data that these platforms offer. Um, then secondarily, you look at well, you look at geography. Yeah, geography is quite is very important actually, because, well, particularly if you. If you if you're working in the kind of live entertainment uh, or galleries or museums, because uh, there are some massive barriers that are you know um, distance is one of them. We like it or not, <laughs> um, together with our price and other barriers. Um, so what would be an example? What would be the counter example of that then? So, so uh, if you got a film, okay, which kind of national anywhere. release, yeah. Then okay. you got, the, but again, geography is important because you got the national uh, level. And that little town in Italy wouldn't get the film. That little town um, wouldn't get the film. No. <laughs> um, or you know, you might have something global, like uh, you know, that video that I mentioned before. This is American childish Gambino. He's got a global market. Uh, he's putting his video on a global platform mm. like YouTube, and then he's got local distributors or people or actually he's got a global distributor which is you know you can listen on, on Spotify uh, although those deals are territory based as well but you don't see it you, you yeah. feel like it's available everywhere yeah, yeah. Um, at least in the western world um, geography and then and then secondarily you, you look at, uh, at demographics but not really it's and, but that's when you start, but the most interesting bit is actually once you've started running the campaign and these tools give you data back oh, okay. based on uh, the kind of people that are, the groups of people that are engaging with what you're putting out, the message you're putting out. They're engaging the most or they are, we say, converting the most, meaning they're actually buying tickets. And that's why I chose this sector actually, that I'm actually mainly promote stuff that people want to know about and want to find out about, want to be told about. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I don't really, hopefully don't really bother anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it goes into the machine, they start serving these ads and, uh, and then certain people start clicking on it, for example. And uh, after a couple of weeks uh, collecting data, it would go, oh, you know, the people are clicking on this are actually more interested in this group of interests. Yeah. Uh, and also they happen to be, I don't know, 25 to 35-year-old males, okay. right? Most likely. Um, so then it will start serving to more of those people, those kinds of people, right? Um, or it would be because people don't really click on anything, most people. 
but they, they get served this ad and then they end up buying a ticket, for example, or buying a product or whatever. So the machine connects the two and it goes, okay, this lots of people yeah. are actually buying more. And it could be two different, so the people who click the most and the people who buy the most could be different groups. Ah. Uh-huh. Because there are people who are more likely to engage but not buy or buy and not engage. So there is that. Um, so you can see these things and then the machine, the machine again, uh, will, because uh, we're living the matrix, uh, <laughs> it, will, uh, um, it will optimize, it will help you. And this is done uh, in a way that so a computer can do it, but a person would take forever, like years, you couldn't in a lifetime yeah. make those type of calls. Uh, so that helps you um, spend your money most effectively. So um, reaching the right people, which is what all advertising sets out to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works particularly well when you are working with these valuable niches that I mentioned before, because it, it, it works particularly well if you don't have to reach a mass market. Like there are other formats actually that are still better at reaching a mass market. Like, like what? Billboards, TV. 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 Yeah. Uh, and billboards, yeah. Uh, but TV is still the, the queen or king, whatever, of mass reach uh, and return. Um, so yeah, that's how it works. Okay, so uh, thanks for that. So if, uh, if you were to compare programmatic, which is like the top of the evolutionary tree at the minute before presumably before machine learning starts to eat everything. Oh, no, machine learning is part of programmatic. Is that part of programmatic? Then yeah. I've not understood. <laughs> but, um, well, this whole thing that I just described with, you know, the, the ads being served and then the machine uh, that's lear- completely, learning. That's completely automatic. That's not... That's completely automatic. Oh, right, now I get it. Okay. Yeah, it's all automatic. Okay. Oh, I figured that you guys looked at information coming back, ran some spreadsheets, said... No, we see it happening. See it happening. I mean, you can change it, you can influence it, but um, as I said, it's so quick and it's so much data that you wouldn't be able to 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 make anything manually. Right. If you had to make all the calculations Got it. and all that stuff. So there's a thing then. So we were just bemoaning the skills shortages in this industry to make this happen. Yeah. Won't at some point the skills be unnecessary? Or what's going to happen next in this field? Um, the skills might be unnecessary. You would still need, so the skills, you still need the skills to, like the very technical IT skills to set up the machine correctly. Yeah. Set up the campaigns in the machine, uh, in the software, and, uh, and make sure and support it, kind of maintain it. Also because all the, I mean, we haven't mentioned, but the, the thing you mentioned before, you know, the, the, the saints, so like, uh, I waste 50% of yeah. my advertising budget, I don't know which, yeah. which 50%. I mean, even with all of this happening, we're talking about now we're wasting maybe, I want to say 30% still. Still that high. Probably 35, 40. You know what I mean? It's, when you talk like big brands and, yeah. uh, and all of that, it's still it's it's a big improvement, but it's nowhere near being the magic bullet that 
actually the, all these companies in the market will tell you they have to offer. Um, and going back to the skill set, is like there's so many companies in the market that offer this uh, programmatically, for, for programmatic, for example. There's so many companies, it's so fragmented that even just to know who to use um, takes a lot of testing, which means money, which means time, which means people. So we're still really at the beginning, in a way. Mm. And, and hopefully we'll get to a point where, um, where it will get easier. Because only, I guess, only the strongest <laughs> will survive. Only the ones that have proved that they're actually functioning. Like, which has happened with Facebook and Google. Because you know, people were getting results. Yes. So they kept using that rather yeah. than other uh, channels. Okay. So earlier on, you, you kind of volunteered London, right? As a being a destination for somebody in, in your line of work. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is grand. So, I mean, what, what's the difference between the London industry and the scene as compared to say Rome, Berlin, Paris, what's different? Um, what's different is that there's a much more uh, entrepreneurial approach to the sector, both in culture and entertainment. It's much more of a defined and structured industry. So the creative industries here are effectively uh, an industry, like yep. a sector, a real sector of the economy mm-hmm. with real um, um, professional roles and careers. Uh, in Europe, in continental Europe, uh, it depends country from country to country, but there's de- generally it's very heavily, um, so culture is very heavily nationalized in a way and funded directly by the government or the local authorities. And uh, but at the same time, so there isn't much of an entrepreneurial approach because there isn't this clear policy, this clear audience development policy that I mentioned before. So yeah. although it's paid by the taxpayer, uh, there isn't really this drive to make it as accessible as possible and uh, and engage as much as possible the population. So do you see it's, empty museums, empty galleries? No, the museums are full of tourists. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, it depends where you go. But, you know, you've got a place like Italy, which has, I mean, uh, um, I keep remembering this number. I don't, I'm not even sure it's, it's right. I read it once, so I'm, I'm, it should be. Well, we'll uh, pretend that, we're at the pub. We got, yeah, which we're pretending it has to be. But yeah. um, it's got 75% of the um, kind of her- capital heritage of the world. Wow. Um, it's it's almost as if it's the remnants of a predatory uh, world empire. Almost, almost, right? You would think, yeah. <laughs> but then Italy ruled the world twice ah, <laughs> in history. On. It was like, yeah, I'm going to say it's like, <laughs> it sounds so fascist. It uh, the, so it was the Romans, but then uh, during the Renaissance, ah, it yeah. was the the banks. Yeah. The um, so, so it's lacking the, the approach. So they got museums feel, feel full of tourists, right? Mm-hmm. And they've got um, the, the professional roles there in Italy are curational. So, uh, but curation as in, uh, so in art historians, uh, um, artists to uh, maintain the, uh, the, 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 cult, the heritage uh, capital. Yep. So the statues, paintings, you know, fix them, uh, keep them alive, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's all more like, you know, stored and displayed there and there's no active use 
of this culture, of this heritage. There's no activation, right? Because all the money, there's a lot of money spent on just preserving it for humanity, right? Makes sense. So that's part of the, of the issue. So you don't have this, the industry, you don't have, I mean, it's very much civil ser uh, service. Uh, meaning also that the way it works in Italy, you know, you know, like, so I worked for the Barbican Centre, right, for the City of London, effectively. I was an employee in the City of London. I, but I did uh, uh, an interview. So I sent a CV. Yeah. I was interviewed. I yeah. got the job. Yeah. Right. Um, in Italy, to get into a civic museum or like, you know, local authority in the cultural department or like a national level or national museum, there's a nationwide um, competition. Ah, it's like our fast stream, right? It's like the civil service entry process. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, which also means that, I mean, in the past it meant that, um, or people get moved normally, uh, this happens as well, they move from department to department within the civil service and they end up in cultural department. Oh, uh, okay. Without having any skills. <laughs> yeah, or no, no or like, knowledge yeah, related to knowledge. that. You know, they're yeah. administrators, you know? Yeah. Um, so that happens. So anyway, there's been, uh, uh, for the past, you know, I think I graduated, uh, arts management, uh, now, what, 12, 11, 12 years ago. And where did you study? In Bologna. In Bologna. And, uh, the oldest university in the world. <laughs> and, uh, for 11 years I've been hearing about, you know, ways to be a bit more entrepreneurial or bring you know these management skills into it uh, and uh, it's just never happening uh, so so that's the main difference and the same thing is in Fr france is heavily funded by the state uh germany and and there's this feeling that all they do and, and this is i've been talking to people in 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 those countries and uh I've been recently actually interviewed for a book that a, a German professor is, is putting together about about that and about having bringing some of the things that we do in, in, in the UK and in London in particular. Do you want to plug the book? I, I don't know what it's called. I, I've just been oh, interviewed okay. for a chapter, but I don't know. Okay. I think it's coming out in, in the autumn. Yeah. But, uh, but it's kind of an academic study for, for the sector there. Um, so there's an understanding within the, the people who study or in the industry that this it's happening that way but and then there's this need to, but the need comes with great investment because um, to have that infrastructure you need to invest in it and even just having a marketing team even a small marketing team is gonna is gonna cost you and, and a market and a proper marketing budget you know advertising budget promotional budget PR whatever it's gonna cost you a lot of money um, so I'm not sure when that's gonna happen so that's why I, I chose um, London. And London in particular, even the difference with the, with the rest of the country is that you've got this uh, uh, micro this system, which, I mean, London is effectively a small country. Yeah. <laughs> the South, London and the Southeast. Absolutely. So you can, you, you run almost a national campaign, you know, every time and you've got this massive pool of people. But also at the same time, you've got this great competition. Because there is thousands, I mean, t tonight in London, if you pick up, you know, if you look at Time Out or uh, if you look online, there are thousands of events going on just tonight yeah. in London. Yeah. So that, that mixture of competition and opportunity, 
because there is a massive audience, uh, I think gives birth to then uh, this whole industry behind it, you know, that tries to push the this product or that product. So, so it's partly a po- what I'm hearing is it's partly a policy uh, funding thing that allows a bit of, uh, or or that 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 permits there to be an absence of dynamism outside yeah. in Europe somewhere, right? Yeah. And uh, the fact that here in this big city, this great big city of ours, <laughs> we've got uh, we have a network effect. We've got. Yeah. Millions of people together. We've got loads of cool stuff happening. So yeah. therefore more cool stuff happens. Yeah. So it's a dynamic market to be in. So uh, having said that though, in a big market like Lon- the London market where stuff is going to be expensive to set up, yeah. rents are high, stuff's going to be expensive to promote, but you've got to pe- pay people. Yeah. Does this free market emphasis as opposed to the European funding model, does the free market emphasis kill creativity at all? Um, I think it, it can, yeah. I mean, obviously, we've seen uh, um, as the funding, kind of public funding, gets cut, uh, you got greater need for commercial success. Yeah, which means you need uh, more, as I said before, populist like commercial uh, rather than and and less risky. Right, uh, experiences. The same thing actually happens with the movies because mm-hmm. that's an entertain. That's a commercial world, and um, and as we've seen in the past, the I mean the 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 financial crisis of two thousand and eight has really uh, started this uh, uh, race, this all uh, superhero race <laughs> in a way in the movies because uh, as money gets tight. Yeah. Then they become, they produce less risky. They Well, movie studios have been producing fewer and bigger films. Uh, the the whole um, independent film uh, industry has been decimated. And because there used to be, uh, you know, there used to be big budget films and there used to be medium sort of little like kind of budget films and then there used to be small budget films now uh, this is what i hear and what i read is like they there's big budget films and there's small budget films mm. there's nothing in the middle anymore mm. and that used to be the independent scene like the steven soderbergh's of you know and yes. and and, and uh, miramax which is not very <laughs> popular oh. <laughs> at the moment <laughs> But uh, with that monster of uh, Harvey Winston, <laughs> a producer, yeah. uh, producer. But that's that's the space he inhabited, right? That middle space, which was big enough, but small enough. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, with lack of money, with tighter budgets, with uh, and also tighter budgets in the audience for culture in general. You know, uh, the, yeah. the DCMS um, a couple of months ago released the data. The visitor data for the National Museums uh, for 2016, and it was the first uh, decrease of visitors in 10 years. Wow! In London, um, and that has to do with uh, the cost of traveling into London from outside, because a lot of the audiences are actually home counties or kind of domestic tourists mm-hmm. into London, um, and uh, the. Um, 
obviously the threat of terrorism has got to do with it. But people and also and people are moving. Uh, I visited central London less often than they used to. Also, there's more again back to the competition. There's more offer uh, local offering. Okay. Uh, so people tend to stay more local. So that's a good thing, I guess. I mean, uh, things thing. feel a bit too biased towards London. So that's, yeah. that's good news. But even in London, even within London, like people tend to just stay more. If they leave east, they tend to stay east. And oh, before okay. they had to travel uh, because there was nothing there. There were no venues maybe. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so what that does though is uh, it, it does kill the sort of effects, at least the research and development side of the industry which is the fringe which is the uh you know the small venues the small artists the small filmmakers um which don't have the opportunities that they used to um also i mean there's a big for example and there are other pressures on this uh because um Music, live music, uh, it's been in the news for a while. You know, there, there's a real threat and loads of uh, small music venues, even historical ones that I've seen the likes of, you know, Oasis and, you know, Blur or like that started there. Um, have been closing down because of um, development, as in building development. Uh, um, oh, as in knocking down these historical in, venues? Well, no, as in building around them, for example, and then mm. having their license uh, withdrawn because oh, like of the neighbors, pollution. you know. Oh, horrendous! Yeah, well, there's been a lot of that to the point that the the mayor of London uh, last year appointed a, a nightlife czar to try to safeguard, to try to protect. Uh, this network of venues and the whole life ni- uh, nightlife uh, industry, mm. which is under threat by um, these uh, rules and you know these developments, and, like noise levels and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And and the we've seen you know the, even national museums and galleries you know they've been more and more reliant on uh, blockbusters. In fact, the DCMS figures what it told us is that they didn't have as many blockbuster exhibitions in 2016. So they didn't attract as many people. Uh, and blockbuster shows are, you know, those classics kind of hits that, you know, your impressionists or yeah. that have had centuries of uh, promotion in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I think 2016, Big Monet at the RA. Um, was in 2016? I think there was... Uh, when was Hockney? Tate last year. Oh yeah, no, but anyway, those those big ones. I mean, Hockney was quite a an interesting one because it, it, yeah, it's a big name, but that was quite a surprise uh, success as well. But um, but yeah, it definitely limits and uh, um, the way the the risk that you can take and uh, culture is about risk and creativity is about risk. For an industry that, as we said before, has got a massive economic impact and um, more than actually uh, other European countries, for example. I mean, the UK is one of the biggest uh, exporters of uh, uh, creativity in the world. Um, And with that comes, you know, we know the soft power of, you know, the... United States have been. It, it, it does always. It does always seem to me that for such a relatively small country, there yeah. does seem to be a lot out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
so yeah, there's a real, there's a real uh, concern, I guess, because uh, um, and now with Brexit as well, you know, and there, there has been, and London in particular has been this uh, hotbed of this melting pot uh, and of, of the best creative minds, you know, coming to to London mm. for the past twenty years or for before then, you know, like forever, yeah, uh, for a long time, and. Uh, um, and now being seen, and I know already, you know, by also talking to people, but like reading stuff, you know, being seen as not as uh, tolerant, not as welcoming, and uh, that kills creativity right there because people can easily go to other places now. Like, uh, you know, they've been for years now going to Berlin, but, you know, you go to Rotterdam. And this is, comes with, you know, in the tech industry as well. Yeah. Uh, same thing is happening, you know. So, um I don't know. So Brexit definitely is gonna is gonna Brexit with the cost of living, um, and and all these factors are kind of you know, sort of the perfect storm. <laughs> it's coming for 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 the sector, maybe you know. It does feel as though we're segueing into Brexit. It does. Okay, so why don't we talk about that? So specifically in your sector, you, you were mentioning the effect on uh, on creativity potentially. Yeah, you know, quite apart from all the other sort of intrinsic pressures in the business. Yeah, uh, and other curious, curiously, that I'd always imagined that globalization would be a force that would cause pressure on any domestic industry like in your industry, entertainment, arts and culture. Um, and Brexit seems like an anti-globalization movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is also damaging. You can't win. <laughs> you can't live with globalization. You can't live without. Um, it's funny. I remember so back in 2001, we were, so I was, um, I was what? Well, uh, 18 and um, and we were well before then as well you know we were it was all about the you know the social forum you remember that in uh, in Brazil the no no global movement ah yes back then and everybody was in that movement was treated as a crazy person um, and all of a sudden <laughs> and we were talking about the same what they were talking I mean I was obviously you know, a teenager and really into that stuff and uh um, they were talking about the same things we're talking about now, but from a left-wing perspective and trying to catch it before it became a, a huge issue, right? Mm. Because it did, it was going to affect uh, people's work and you know, the labor market and the pressures on the labor market and costs of uh, staff and, and all that stuff and production. And, um, and all of a sudden, then 18 years later... 17 years later, well, 15 years later with Brexit, you know, it all came back from the right. <laughs> yeah. like, it's like a circle. It's like we, we didn't look. Uh, we looked on one side and then we got hit by a car <laughs> <laughs> trying to cross the road on the other side. Yeah, so you had the, le the left-wing reaction, then yeah. you had the right-wing reaction. You also had Lexit, of course. Lexit? Lexit. So Lexit was the left. Oh yeah, the left Brexit. argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to that at that point, though, the left had uh, what well, the liberal left mm. had, um, you know, 
had taken a different approach, which was there was this uh, opportunity, this global opportunity in competition, I guess. Uh, but with having a big role for the state to keep things uh, livable, you know. <laughs> um, the problem is then when then the other guys come in and go, oh, we don't need the state to keep an eye on this. Let's go wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> now it's all about the Polish plumber all yeah. of a sudden. Um, so, yeah, funny that. So, yeah. But, but on, on the sect, Brexit on the sector, I mean, there's got some immediate kind of direct effects, as in um, loads of work is funded through European funds, European Union funds. Um, and, uh, you know, collaboration partnerships across different venues and promoters across Europe. Uh, same thing that's very similar to what's happening, what will happen with uh, research you know, again, universities. Yeah. Uh, they get access uh, by partnering with, uh, you know, two or three partners in different European countries, in different EU countries. They get funding uh, to do research. Same thing with producing, you know, a, a, a play in the theatre. You got like, sometimes a network of like 10 different theatres around Europe to produce one work that then will tour. Uh, which cut the costs dramatically for, uh, and you can do better work, and you can pay uh, actors and directors and dramaturgs more. You know, amazing. Um, so we're we're turning our back on that. So yeah, but yeah. luckily we got three hundred and fifty millions a week. To well, use. that's going to the NHS. <laughs> it's not going to us. Oh, no, <laughs> what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We well, all need to become GPs since there's we'll, a shortage of that and plumbers. Um, so what was interesting to me when, you know, when we talked in the past was, uh, around about the time of the referendum, I was working for a client in Birmingham and I'd travel up to this station in Birmingham. It was like a suburban rail station and I'd come out and I'd noticed there was, I've never seen these in London, but I'd notice it when I'm traveling around for work, a plaque on the wall that said, this facility has been made possible by funding from the European community. Right. And that is the only visible sign that we have in this country of anything positive that's done yeah. by the EU. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I remember from conversations that we had that it's not it's not the it's not the role or, or the permitted role of the European Union to uh, advocate for itself in member state countries. Yeah. In fact, it's our parties are relied upon to do that. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, can you imagine, like, seen by a certain side, political side, mm -hmm. side as this totalitarian regime, yeah. right? This yeah. supranational totalitarian regime yeah. already. Yeah. Imagine if they had a, a propaganda department. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you <laughs> right? imagine a, a particularly strange-faced, chain-smoking, pint-drinking man yeah. likening that to something that Goebbels would do? Yeah, exactly. With no hint of irony. No hint of irony. So... Clearly, the EU couldn't do that. Yeah. The way it did work was by funding uh, projects that, like cultural projects or like communication projects, that would and, uh, um, highlight uh, the connection between European countries, I guess. But that was very subtle, obviously. And we're talking about countries, we're not talking about the EU. Yeah. 
Um, now, the one thing that I, um, the first thing that I noticed, and, and my partner is German, mm-hmm. and she noticed it as well when, when she moved here. For the first time, and it was a uni, um, again, so I, I kept hearing people, like, you know, lecturers, for example, uh, people who were pro-European, uh, didn't have any problem with the European Union or, or Europe, and uh, talk about the European Union as uh, this experiment, right? That was maybe <laughs> going to work, maybe not. Oh. Yeah, it was always treated as... Uh, Oh, we'll see what happens with this, right? Right. And coming from continental Europe, that was completely different. Like in continental Europe, it's always been, it, it just is yeah. the European Union. Yeah. It's no experiment. Like, you know, it's, a, it's something that they, they, we wanted and it's something that it's unescapable. Because of the, we're talking about globalization, we're talking about, you need to be a bigger player on the world stage. You have a shared future, and that's the very definition of a nation. Yeah. Right. Having a shared future, a shared past, as bloody as it can be, but then again, everywhere else the same. Well, you know, there's a particular union that we live in right now that has a very bloody history yeah and that is amazing because like yeah. living in a union like the united kingdom yeah itself being a union of states yeah. uh, and then seeing this other thing this other institution as this experiment i was like okay mm. uh, hey scotland <laughs> stay in the union yeah the united kingdom because it's better that because way because it's better yeah. to you yeah. stay in yeah so yeah, it made it made little sense, and at the time I thought, well, I thought little of it, but you know, it just was funny, a funny feeling that. <laughs> um, and then looking at the papers and looking at the the parties, the political parties that were supposed to, like you know, the Labour Party, and then, to be fair, um, Tony Blair was very vocal about it when he was in Europe. Yeah. Not as much when he was here. <laughs> to True. the British public. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and, and that happens across the continent though. It's like every single national government uses Europe as a scapegoat because there's this big thing that is so far away. Again, they can't really fight back. It's the perfect target. It is, yeah. It's the perfect target for their own shortcomings, right? But with the understanding in continental Europe, across the board, left or right extremes, that it just is. Right? Well, here there was always that underlining feeling, you know, that maybe. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and I think that also on the Remain side, you know, uh, today, even, you know, after, you know, the, the, those people who voted Remain, but now they're like, oh, let's make it work. Yeah, well, you know, will of the people. That, yeah. That's where it comes from, you know what I mean? It comes from this idea that it was always uh, a test, that we were going to see that the British pub, the Britain, the Brits were going to see if it was going to turn out okay for them. Mm. Um, so, so that was number one thing. And, and again, newspapers, you know, now you get, you know, The Guardian, the likes like The Guardian are very pro-European and they're pushing that agenda for the second referendum and all of that. But then back in the day, um, they were publishing the articles about the curve of the bananas or stuff like that. Yeah. You know, um, so... Um, so yeah, there was never really a concerted effort to really sell the idea of this 
nation, this federal nation, basically, uh, with a shared future. So do you see the future? Um, well, with great problems, by the way. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not perfect at all. But Absolutely. Which unions like that can be perfect? I mean, it's, it is an experiment. Uh, but you see unions that have started in much easier conditions, like with basically from scratch, like the United States mm. of America, mm. uh, they haven't had it easy at all either. No. You know? no. That was bloody recently. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, it was bloody recently have, here too. But yeah. And they have one currency yeah. across a huge, a, a huge geographic area, yeah. across lots and lots of different industries. You've got rust belts. You've got uh, rural economies, compl- almost completely agrarian economies. You've got service-based. You've got somewhere in the middle, some industry left. Yeah. Kind of specialized between you the states. Yeah. Right? Sounds very much like Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And then people move from one state to the other. That's the thing. Like, So I so I moved here from Italy. Yeah. Uh, and I never thought, when I moved here, I never thought for a second that I was actually emigrating yeah, interesting. I was just moving within the union. That's the thing no one really talks about, actually, if you notice, is the con yeah. on people that now are treated, are talked about as immigrants, mm. when really we were all part of the same nation state, in a way. Yeah. The same union. Yeah. Like if someone from Scotland moves to London, ah, it's, fine. it's not an immigrant, no. is it? No. Um, same thing. So all of a sudden you go like, oh, well, okay. Well, so it wasn't like that. So you signed all those treaties. We made, we agreed all those things. Uh, but your word, your signature is worth, is not worth the paper is on, you know? Yeah. No, I- and that is what is going to really affect, I think, this country in the long term. Um, what a lack of trust! The lack of trust, but not not on a on a governmental level. I think because I mean I mean it's politicians. You know they're just you know they lie for a living. So yeah. it's not like you know. But um, although they put in place you know contracts to put in place checks and balances that give you some stability, which is very difficult to do uh, if you have a government that can just flip, mm-hmm. uh, as we see with Italy. You know where there's it's incredibly unstable politically and uh, attracts less uh, investments from abroad for example well italy ironically was used in the 2011 uh, proportional well alternative voting system av referendum as an example of why we should go nowhere near that filthy proportional system yeah uh, because we'll end up god forbid like italy rather than thinking we'll end up god forbid like germany yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, and and it's interesting what you say there about being viewed. You know, this idea that actually you're an immigrant. Uh, it's almost as if people have forgotten that it was a two way right. It was a bi directional right. They had every right to move and live elsewhere in the yeah. in the EU if they wanted. But in fact, I was told I didn't know the the history. I was told uh, by someone. Uh, actually, it was in the 1970s that loads of. Uh, People from uh, Yorkshire, kind of the northeast of England, moved to Germany and Switzerland, like to get work. Yeah, um, which is the same thing that happened in Italy. You know, they they all went to Germany as well mm, yeah. <laughs> and Scandinavia. You know, mm. um, 
So well, clearly a two-way system. It just depends because when you have a, a, an economy that grows faster than another economy in a, in, a, in a union like that, there are periods where you know people flock to naturally to the growing economy because there's just more uh, um, work available mm. and more opportunity available. But then you know in twenty years' time, maybe it switches and uh, and then you go all of a sudden the, the the other way around, and you can't know that. You know, because we've really forgotten, but like, you know, beginning of the 90s and uh, the 80s, this country wasn't doing that well, was it? It's almost as if we want, <laughs> by having so much control, we want to have a command economy and we want to move away from the wisdom of the market. It doesn't make any sense, <laughs> does it? Um, but yeah, that, that story about people from the north of England moving over to Europe to work, back to the culture, entertainment and arts thing. So the entertainment end of the spectrum was a TV show called Auf Wiedersehen Pet. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think they were Liverpudlians who moved over to Germany. All right. And uh, they, you know, they were builders. Yeah. And it was just about the culture shock and the adjustment that they went through. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I mean, those were the Polish mm-hmm. builders that are coming here now. Yeah. You know, the Polish and Romanian that, that are coming here now. Um, it just, you know, the wheel keeps spinning. <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh, so you can't really know. And, and also, like, I don't know if it's very wise to to burn bridges that way, you know. Uh, there's a there's a writer I like called Don Reinertsen, and one of his lines is, "You can ignore economics if you want, but economics won't ignore you." Yeah, yeah. So I think that might be the case here. <laughs> so okay, great. So we've we've had a, a nice little tour today across um, an entire <laughs> sector. Blimey. Have you got any exciting exhibitions coming up that you want to plug? Um, yeah, well, we've got the... I mean, talking about Brexit and politics, we've got a, at the moment until the 12th of August uh, 2018. Um, we've got um, Hope to Nope, uh, Graphics and Politics, 2008-2018. Cool. Um, so that covers 10 years of how... Actually, digital is a big part of that, how digital has disrupted political communication. And uh, uh, so it starts sort of, sort of from the Obama phenomenon and kind of the Obama poster, uh, which again was a grassroots uh, product. It's it wasn't commissioned by the campaign, it was Shepherd's Ferry made it. And then it became viral back then when it was kind of the, the beginning of kind of social media um, going ma- uh, mainstream. And, uh, and up to Trump, basically, and up to today, where uh, you got internet memes and you, know, uh, and, and, and you can't believe anything you read anymore. Even it's more Pe- so than Pepe the, the Frog featured. Pepe the Frog is featured. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, go, on, go Pepe. <laughs> um, and then uh, coming up in the autumn, we've got a uh, exhibition about past visions of the future of the home. So uh-huh. how big uh, thinkers, designers, architects in the 20th century had uh, envisioned how domestic living was going to be in the future. And how actually the challenges they were trying to address back then are very real today and how that affects us and looking at our future. Great. Thank you. Well, I'll put links to those uh, on the site. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to our extended special edition of London Digital Nattering. Do follow us on Twitter at LDN Podcast. And please let us know how you found this and other shows we've done. 
Also, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. We look forward to having you with us next time.